Before our message time today, we want to have a time of prayer. And uh, we remember those that are on our hearts and minds as we uh, think of our morning prayer time today. Um, several um, of us are still going through uh, difficult times. Uh, um, we certainly remember Christina Gladwell as she's uh, getting used to the LVAD and uh, recovering from that process of being in the hospital and, and uh, even the process of getting through the holidays with an LVAD and living with an LVAD. Um, we also think of Harry and Barb Fink as Harry continues to battle uh, stage four cancer. Uh, so um, those would be some that you'd particularly want to remember in your prayers uh, this week. And with those on our hearts and minds, as well as our own hurts and hopes, we offer our morning prayer today. Dear God, we come into this house today to worship you. It is our highest and best calling. It is a top priority for us because nothing deserves our attention and our praise more than you do. So many times, God, we confess that you take second place in our life or fourth place or eighth place, or if you're even on the list at all. Sometimes we come to worship as an obligation. Sometimes we come out of habit or as a duty. And we ask your forgiveness for that, God. As we start off this new year, we are here in this, in this place, and we are here to give ourselves to you. We pray, God, that you would accept our praises and our worship, and that they would be pleasing to you, and that you would bless our efforts to, uh, to bless you and to praise you. We remember many things of our world, uh, as has been said, that are messed up these days. We pray for tensions in the Middle East. We pray for fires in Australia that are burning out of control. We pray for many, many other people that have been displaced from their homes people that are continuing to battle um, traffic and accidents and, and all sorts of things going on. We pray that you'd be with them and let them know of your presence with them. Let them know that you are near. We pray, God, for those who are held against their will, those that are trafficked and oppressed, and pray that your spirit would work in those situations to help bring release to the captive. God, we remember those on our prayer list this day, and we pray for those who continue to go through cancer treatments to battle that dread disease. We pray for those who are recovering from illness and recovering from surgery. We pray for those who anticipate surgery this week and pray that you would be with them. Give them your comfort and your peace as they go through that surgery and recover from that surgery as well. Now, God, we do pray for this time of worship. We pray that we would cast aside anything that would hinder us and weigh us down from giving you the praise that you so richly deserve this day and every day. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. 
Our scripture for this morning is out of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Again, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Then King Herod, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found, found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they, heard, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. As we get into the new year, we begin to get back into a routine again. Life shifts out of holiday mode and back into regular schedule mode. And that's a little sad. Although for a few reasons, both Priscilla and I are kind of happy to see 2019 in the rear view mirror. Hopefully over the past few weeks, you've had a chance to see family and friends, to celebrate the holidays and to relax a little bit with a little more casual schedule. And as you swing into your regular activities, hopefully your batteries are recharged and you're ready for life ahead. As we leave the holidays behind and get our life back to normal, you can't help but wonder what life was like for Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. For the past 12 months, it had been anything but normal. They had seen miracles and had visits from angels and some smelly old shepherds. And at this point, following Jesus' birth, I imagine the parents are wondering how their lives would ever get back to normal again. With the birth of Jesus, I suspect that they knew that their lives would be far from routine and free from distraction. And as we know some of the story of the next few years of Jesus' life, we can say, yes, some extraordinary things are going to happen. In fact, one of those events is about to happen. And we read of it today. 
Since Jesus' birth, Luke 2 says that Jesus was named on the eighth day. And we're told in this scripture that his family settled into a house in Bethlehem. In this house, still trying to come to terms with what's happened in their life, Joseph had probably opened up a carpenter shop, and the couple had likely heard that Herod was looking for them. Then a group of wise men comes to visit. From the travel time of the Magi and the order of Herod in uh, chapter 2, verse 16, that all boys under two years old be, be killed, it's estimated that Jesus was about two years old by the time this visit takes place. This is the scene that the Magi find as they follow the star to the house where the king of the Jews is. And there they find Jesus. The Magi, or wise men, followed a star from the east and through Herod's court. But they likely didn't understand the Hebrew scriptures. And so they seemingly had to, uh, hadn't heard the angels singing and they had to stop for directions. The Magi had the ability to discern the movements of the stars and planets, so they were probably considered to be more astrologers or mystics. It's interesting that they can discern signs and follow a certain star to come close to Jesus, but they have to stop and find out exactly where he is. The wise men can't find Jesus without stopping to hear about the scripture from the religious leaders of the day. As the Magi go on their way, they continue to be obedient and follow the star that's, and the sign that's in front of them. They search for the child and finally come to Mary and Joseph's house where they find Jesus. The arrival of the Magi is celebrated on January 6th, normally the 12th day of Christmas. And the date marks the beginning of the season of Epiphany. Again, Epiphany meaning that the divine has made an appearance in our midst. I suppose more specifically, an appearance to the Gentiles who are represented by the visitors from the East. As an aside, it's interesting that our Christmas traditions, for better or worse, have shaped how we consider this story and the Magi themselves. For instance, we often sing on this day the, the hymn, We Three Kings, assuming that there's one wise man for each of the gifts that are presented to Jesus. But the biblical narrative, if you remember, doesn't tell us how many magi there were. Once it was thought there were 12 magi corresponding to the number of tribes of Israel. Tradition also holds that the wise men were of various ages, one elderly, one middle-aged, and one young. Also, there was one black and two white magi, often one Caucasian and one Mongol. I suppose that the shaping of the wise men by tradition only reinforces the intent of the gospel that Jesus is a Messiah for all people. Our text says that as the magi find Jesus, they are filled with joy and they bow down and worship Jesus. And they bring Jesus those familiar gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those are were all three symbols of royalty and worthy for a king. Royals commonly gathered as much gold as they could get their hands on. 
Incense was used by ancient cultures in religious rites to indicate the presence of God. And myrrh is referenced several places in the Bible and was used for a number of purposes, in particular as a painkiller, an embalming substance, a fragrance, and a beauty treatment. With their gifts, the wise men then pronounced Jesus as the king of the world, as God's high priest, and as the suffering servant who dies as a fragrant and beautiful offering before God. As we read through this story, it's tempting to follow the thinking of tradition. We focus on three wise men following a star, coming from the east and bearing their extravagant gifts. If we do that, though, we forget the real reason that the Magi came in the first place. As they speak with Herod's officials in verse 2, they don't say that they're coming to deliver packages to the king. And when they get to Jesus, they don't congratulate themselves or give themselves a high five for finding the king, Jesus. They don't start asking a bunch of questions. They don't even attempt to get anything from Jesus or his family. No, the wise men have traveled over many miles through day and night, through trials and through foreign lands, so that they might worship the king of another people. And worship is their first and foremost gift. They simply worship Jesus and offer themselves to him. They worship Jesus for who he is. And it seems like that is the essence of what worship is. One definition I found says that the heart of worship is to celebrate God, to extol him, to sound his praises, and boast in God. We honor and revere Jesus and God in general because of who he is, perfect, just, almighty, creator of the universe. And God is worthy of the best that a person has to give. The Magi gave the best that they had in material, in material terms, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they were rare gifts and presents that might have actually financed the Holy Family's upcoming trip to Egypt. But the Magi also gave the best of themselves, that worship that is a rare gift of the heart and of the soul. Preacher and professor Fred Craddock tells a story of a a young woman, a 28-year-old, who came into his church one Sunday and said it was the first time she had ever been in church. When Fred confirmed that, he asked her what the experience was like, and she said, kind of scary. Scary? Fred questioned. The woman said, yeah, it it just seems so important. And you know, I never go to anything important. And this just seems so important. It's that sentiment of importance that has captured my attention for today. And actually, the importance of worship ties into the book that I've invited you to read with me into this new year. That book is Letters to the Church by church planter and Christian author Francis Chan. And I heard, by the way, today that there are copies of that book 
uh, in the public library. So that would be a place where you can find that book if you didn't have an e-reader or have a way that you wanted to buy that book. And that was a free commercial, by the way. In his book, Chan argues that God's church started out as a radical, spiritually intimate gathering of believers that ultimately changed history. But millions of people today seem content to be just observers in church, if they even come to church at all. Many more people, he says, have left the church brokenhearted and cynical. So Chan asks us to consider how the church has drifted from God's original intent. And he challenges the church with questions like, what does God want from his church? And when Jesus returns, will he find us caring for his bride even more than for our very own lives? The wise men who came to Jesus' house at the beginning of how we count our years now didn't know what Jesus' church was or what it was going to be, but they knew about the importance of worship. In this text, it's the most important thing that they did They devoted all of their energy to it. They spent about two years of their life finding this newborn king. Presumably money wasn't a concern, and time didn't matter. Theirs was an all-consuming journey and a sacred task. Gathering here for worship, we ought to have that same feeling as the wise men had. In fact, I wonder if our worship might even be deeper given what Jesus has done for us. When I think about worship, Revelation chapter 5 comes to mind. There is a vision of the throne room of God and a scroll sealed with seven seals in God's right hand. And the Lamb, Jesus, comes to open the scroll And as he does so, this happens. Chapter 5, verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. that every creature that is written of in Revelation 5 means you and me. Showering out praise and worship on God is our honor and our privilege when that time comes. And it's an eternal job for us as well now. We have a part to play in God's eternal plan And a portion of that is to worship God and give God our praises. We worship God on our own each and every day, but we also come here to worship also. We worship God with others who love God and owe God their praises too. When we're here, it's as if we're led into the throne room of God, so we are on holy ground. We ought to be happy to be here. We ought to feel privileged to enter these doors. We ought to be reverent and treat this experience 
with respect and reverence. Our focus ought to be here and on the one that we worship, not on something else that we have to do today or if we get along with those who are with us in this room or, with, or if we're entertained by what's going on in this hour of worship. The worship of God ought to consume our entire being so that that is our entire focus. And I dare say there isn't even room for having your cell phone on or for checking your texts or whatever you're doing with your phones during worship. The bottom line is that worship is about giving God the praise and worship that He deserves and giving Him the best that He deserves. Worship is not about you. It's not even remotely, faintly, or possibly about you or me. I could go on, but hopefully you get the point of the importance of reverent worship, and you'll consider how you can reverently worship God, and you'll consider how you can, yes, more reverently worship God throughout the rest of your life be it in a sanctuary or through the everyday routines of life. As the woman said to Fred Craddock, worship is important. It's that important. It doesn't have to be overly scary, but it should be taken seriously and inspire awe and wonder in your life. It ought to help you grow in your relationship with God and lead you to be the person that God has designed you to be. I hope then that you'll take time to devote yourself to this very important task and bring your worship to Jesus. It's the most precious gift that you can bring Him. On another note, while I'm here, at the beginning of the year, I like to have a word for the year. And that might be a question for us one of these weeks. It's a word for us to keep in mind and to think about throughout the year. And when you do that, something interesting happens. You see the word in your daily activities. You find ways to live out that word, and by the end of the year, you can see a, the difference that that word has made in your life during the year. Examples of a word for the year might be commitment. It might be study, or witness, or balance or intention, devotion, even fun or play. For the year 2020, my word is passion. And this word comes out of my reading of this book by Francis Chan. I want to have a passion for life and how I live life. I want to have a passion for what we do at church and through the church. I don't want to just go through the motions but to really have a fire for what we choose to do, whom we reach out to, and whom we serve through this church, this God-ordained vehicle that we use through Omaha and beyond. So that is my word for the year. I hope that you, if, have, if you haven't chosen a word for the year, you still have 358 days or 59, 61 days, whatever it is. Uh, but I hope you will take time to think of a word and make commit to that this year.